Hi, Angie. Can you believe this is it? No, I really, really cannot. I'm honestly very sad about that. This is this has really taught me so much. This doing this series, I've learned so much, and I've loved researching it. Um, and I can't believe it. I can't believe we've reached our final episode of this special summer series that we've been calling "Shuffling Through History: Everything We Know, Don't Know, and Think We Know About the Tarot." And it's just been amazing. I know. Um, it's been so much fun and such an eye-opening journey for me to say the least. I know that my knowledge and perspectives have been widened through the researching for these episodes, and I hope all of you who've been listening and following along feel the same way. If you learned from or have been challenged by the history that we've shared here, we would really appreciate if you took two minutes to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That review can be as short as one sentence and or rate the show on Spotify as well. This will allow us to keep expanding our audience so that more people can learn about the history of the cards. And thanks to all of you who are supporting this work over on our Patreon, uh, where you can get early access to new episodes, receive weekly missives, and attend our new favorite thing, our monthly tarot hangs with our Patreon community. And we'll leave all that info in the show notes, along with our sources and recommendations from this episode, if you want to check it out. And we hope to see you on Patreon. So without further ado, today's final episode is jam-packed, and we'll be tackling our final chapter of Cardamancy, and we have a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be talking about Lenormand and Oracle decks, the open reading approach that we teased way back on our first episode, the influence of Jungian psychology on tarot, as well as a discussion on 21st century approaches to interpreting the cards and where we imagine tarot will be headed in the future. So... Buckle up, this one's extra long and extra juicy. So in one of our quarterly question episodes from season four, we talked a little bit about the differences between Oracle and Tarot and why some people might feel more inclined to work with one or the other. As we already know, in the Tarot, we have 78 cards, generally, four suits with 14 cards each and 22 major arcana cards with the elements of air, water, fire, and earth. Most tarot decks will have this structure and usually have a few meanings with each of the cards that have not changed a whole lot over time, stemming from those codified meanings that the 17th and 18th century occultists created. With Oracle, there is no set number of cards, images, or meanings. Most of them have art and meanings that are created by the author of the deck and the artists. Opinions vary widely as to whether Lenormand decks should be considered oracle decks. This is because while Lenormand is decidedly different than tarot, it is not as free form as other oracle decks. Lenormand decks are generally comprised of 36 cards that correspond with the suits of playing cards, spades, clubs, diamonds, and hearts. While reversals may be read with the tarot, with Lenormand you generally don't read reversals. The Petite Lenormand is a deck of 36 fortune-telling cards, including simple images like dog, house, and anchor, which first appeared in the 1790s in Germany, and which were redesigned in 1845, soon after the death of French fortune-teller Marie-Anne Adelaide Lenormand. The deck was formulated after a German card game, and that came out of Nuremberg in 1799 called The Game of Hope, although now there is new information about a deck that came out earlier in 1775 called the Burning Serpent Oracle. I'll come back to Marie Lenormand in just a moment, but I want to spend some time explaining the Game of Hope. The game was created by Johann Hechtel, 
and the cards contain simple artwork of everyday things that can be easily associated with meanings such as dog, ring, ship, scythe, moon, house, letter, anchor, and more. The deck was originally created purely for entertainment purposes. Users are meant to engage with the cards through a spread called the grand tableau, meaning the big picture. The other translation for tableau was table, which made me laugh because a 36 card spread would probably take up the entirety of your table, but <laughs> digress. <laughs> Robert M. Place Tarot gives a quick explanation of how to play the game as Johann Hechtel wrote out in his pamphlet of the same title, Game of Hope. Quote, it was a race game and it came with instructions, which have been published in English by Katz and Goodwin. The 36 cards were to be arranged in a square of six rows of six cards in numerical order, and two dice were thrown to see how many cards along the square a player may move his or her marker. There are lucky and unlucky cards, and landing on them brings rewards or penalties. The first player to land on the next to last card, the anchor, called hope in the booklet, wins. In Christian iconography, the anchor is a symbol of the Christian virtue, hope, and this explains the name of this card and of the game. If the player overshoots the anchor and lands on the last card, which is the cross, he or she will be stuck until a double number is thrown or another player lands on it, and then the first player can go backward from this space. End quote. Let's pause here for a moment. Before we get into how to use the cards for divination, we want to touch on a Reader's Digest version of the life of Madame Lenormand, who this deck was named for. Marie Anne Adelaide Lenormand was born on May 27, 1772 in Alençon in the Normandy region of France. Life had a lot of tough hurdles for Marie, as it did for many people at that time. Her father died when she was five, and her mother remarried but died not long after. Her stepfather continued to support the kids financially, but eventually placed Marie and her younger sister at a Benedictine monastery. Her brother was placed to be cared for elsewhere and eventually joined the French military. Marie knew from a young age that she had a gift for prediction. It's said that at the age of seven at the convent where she grew up, she predicted the removal of one of the superiors and even predicted her successor. At the age of 14, she moved to Paris and began absorbing knowledge on subjects including math, astronomy, Greek and Roman oracles, Druids, the Kabbalah, and became an expert in fortune telling. She said that it was at this age that she came across the Romani in France who gave her her first card deck and instructed her on how to read them. She was also a fan of Etila, who you'll remember from our last episode on 18th century occultists, and was part of a secret society herself called the Members of Mercury, who were located in London. By the time she reached the age of 17, Marie opened a bookshop and wrote 14 books, mostly on her dealings with her famous clientele. She would promote her writing, but she also did this to deter the authorities from interfering with her fortune-telling practices, which were illegal at the time, and she was eventually put in jail in the years 1774, 1803, and 1809, during a period known in the years of the French Revolution called the Reign of Terror. During this time, public executions were quite normal, and anyone who might be questioning the ideals of revolution or who might be part of the old ruling class might be dragged to the guillotine. In fact, it was during one of her periods of imprisonment that she met Josephine Bernays, who would later be known as Josephine Bonaparte. Yes, that Bonaparte. <laughs> Marie and Josephine began to cultivate a close friendship that would last years, and it was during this time that Marie predicted that Josephine would make it out of jail, but her husband would not. 
and that her next match would be destined for glory. As you can guess from the name change, Josephine would go on to marry Napoleon Bonaparte two years after her release, when he was still a French officer. Following the 1799 coup d'etat, Napoleon became the emperor and Josephine became empress. Sadly, Marie could not predict Josephine's death in 1814, which left her devastated, and she would go on to publish a two-volume biography about Josephine. It's not surprising then to know that she was imprisoned during this time, especially knowing about her royalist leanings. As for Napoleon himself, according to historyofyesterday.com, quote, Napoleon did not like his wife's interests in prophesying, and he especially did not like her relationship with Madame Lenormand, particularly when Madame Lenormand's predictions turned to him. She made predictions about Napoleon's divorce from Josephine, which transpired in 1809, his exile, rumored to be predicted to the exact day, and his death in 1821, end quote. Marie had a long life, dying at the age of 71 in 1843. Two years later, the first Lenormand deck was born, titled Grand Jeu de Mademoiselle Lenormand, printed by Grimaud. Of course, having really nothing to do with Lenormand, but capitalizing on her legacy by co-opting her name. Soon after, there followed Le Petit Lenormand and others. Mary Kay Greer, who we quote often here on the podcast, has written pretty extensively on the history of Marie Lenormand, so we'd encourage everyone to check out the sources we have listed in the show notes. The accounts of what it was like to have a reading with her are pretty cool, too. Okay, so now that we've gone a little bit into the history, let's talk a little bit about using the decks. Labyrinthos.co lays out a few different methods for reading with the Lenormand. We're going to go briefly over some of the ways that you can use the Lenormand to divine. When using the cards for divination, which is also detailed in the Game of Hope pamphlet, you lay the cards out and then you look for the figure that represents you, called the personal card. Generally, you'd pick the man or the woman card. I love and that binary. <laughs> again, again with the binary. And then you'd create a story from the images that surround that card. And again, since it's is purely for entertainment, the story doesn't necessarily need to be laid in with deep earth shattering meaning. The querent pulls from the associations that they feel when they look at the imagery. With the grand tableau setup, you can start very simply, as we mentioned before, with the card set up in four rows of six or three rows of eight, and that last row would be four cards. You can begin by flipping two cards over at a time, starting from the top left corner and proceeding down row by row. This would be a really great option for those who are new to card reading, so you can just be really easy with yourself and start layering meanings as you flip the cards. The most popular method seems to be to find your personal card first in the grand tableau. The cards to the left represent past circumstances, and the further left you go, the further into the past the circumstance. The cards to the right represent potential for the future. The cards above the personal card represent everything on the surface or in the person's consciousness, and everything underneath the personal card is in the subconscious. The nine card spread, which is the next most popular variation, would be to find the card that talks about the question that you have in mind. Say, for instance, that you find the fish, which talks about money matters. You would look at the eight cards surrounding that card, switch the fish card so that it's in the center of the spread, and then you would proceed to read the nine cards from top to bottom, left to right. Angie, are you someone that likes to read the rules of a game that, like, before you play it for the first time? Yeah, but you know what? I'm honestly not a card play, oh, like, not a game person in general because I, mm. I get really, like, annoyed with how long 
rules take to get through I would rather kind of play as I go you know yes yes I am definitely someone that needs to just be like let's just try it just like give me a visual you know like show me how it's done but like my fiance loves to read like every rule in the book and (laughs) I I totally just zone out until the reading is done there's actually I think there's a really funny SNL skit about this about like the way people learn games um but yeah I'm just like as as we were going through this Lenormand thing I was like okay, I'm going to need someone to just give me a a how-to. I'm going to just like show me what to do. Let's go. Yeah. There's actually a lot of different methods that you can use for reading with the the grand tableau. So you can look at that further if you look at the sources that we've linked in the show notes. Lenormand is a divinatory system all its own, and we could honestly devote an entire episode to it, but we're going to move on now by returning back to a subject that we touched on in our first episode, the open reading style of interpreting the Terra de Marseille, as created by Yov Bendov. Born in 1957 in Tel Aviv, Israel, Bendov studied physics and philosophy of science at Tel Aviv University and earned his doctorate in philosophy of quantum mechanics from Paris 13 University. He published the first tarot book in Hebrew in 1981 and studied tarot and psychomagic with Alexandro Jodorowsky in the mid-80s. Jodorowsky, by the way, is a fascinating and highly controversial figure in his own right. We don't have time to go into his work today, but if you haven't heard of him, he's definitely worth a Google. On his website, Bendov summarizes his open reading approach as being, quote, based on the three following points. First, a tarot card does not have to have a fixed meaning, which can be learned in advance. Rather, the meaning emerges from what we can see in the card. Second, the function of each position in a spread is also not fixed. Rather, it depends on the card combination. Third, we don't start by interpreting each card separately. Instead, we try to see the whole picture, end quote. This approach differs from approaches that are perhaps a bit more common today. For instance, many tarot practitioners enjoy working with spreads in which each card has a specific placement, and each placement speaks to a specific meaning, topic, or question. But to quote from Bendove, quote, In the open reading approach, the spread layout is treated differently. It only tells us how many cards to draw and how to arrange them on the table. It does not tell us in advance the function of each position in the spread. Before we see the cards on the table, we can't say what each of them represents, the Quirin's past or future, his weaknesses or strengths, or anything else. Instead of using predefined functions, in the open reading, we look at the cards and try to understand the role of each one in relation to the full spread, end quote. Furthermore, Bendove encourages Quirin questions be taken lightly, quote, Many tarot books attach much importance to the explicit formulation of question. It is as if the cards were somehow obliged to answer the exact wording of the query. But as I see it, even if the querent comes to the reading with a clear and precise question, we should regard it only as a starting point. People are not always self-aware enough to know what exactly it is that troubles them, end quote. Hmm. Have you ever had experience with, with this type of reading, Nick? Um, I've never had an official open reading uh, reading from anyone, but Morgan Glover, who was on the podcast a couple seasons ago, um, uses this approach and actually is kind of how I first was introduced to it. Um, and it's funny, when I was reading Bendove's book um, in preparation for this episode, 
you know, a lot of what he's talking about, I kind of already do. And I think a lot of other readers already have sort of integrated into the way they work. For instance, I do think that's a really good point that people oftentimes, you know, don't really know the best question that they should be asking, or they'll sort of want to ask the the simpler question or, you know, won't, won't want to go as deep. So I, I really like his point that you want to leave space for, you know, what wants to come up. Um, but it was interesting also to reflect on how I learned tarot, a lot of teachers do really emphasize, you know, you need to really think about the question or really ask the right question. And I actually used to say that a lot in, in earlier readings I used to do. I used to be like, you know, we really want to make sure that we're asking the right question to be able to get the best response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, it's very interesting looking back on my own experience. I think pretty similarly, I think I was kind of already using elements of this. Um, but if somebody didn't have a question, I was like, you know, okay, like, let's just see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the thought was if they're already shuffling the cards, it already is kind of implanted with their energy that they're bringing. Right. So this is a good place to pause and reflect on what a huge change has occurred in the span of roughly 30 years in terms of the ways in which the cards are being used. Towards the close of the 19th century, many occultists began to view the tarot as more of a divinatory tool with direct application for the individual rather than as a receptacle for a universal wisdom. Remember, originally the Golden Dawn did not think of the symbols as metaphors, but believed that they carried powers and were able to act independently from their users. Now, moving towards the middle of the 20th century, things began to shift even further with the additional potential that tarot might be used in what many people refer to now as a reflective manner. And, you know, this is one of those moments, Angie, that I really um, feel like I threaded some nuance because, you know, I was I was looking at the overall history that we've talked about. I was looking back towards the, um, you know, 1700s, 1800 occultists and how they were starting to basically, you know, the cards were becoming popular or were popular already amongst people. And people started to codify ways to use them for divination, which, you know, is, it was most likely, you know, influenced by Romani practices and Romani stereotypes. And they were wanting to kind of, you know, take that and kind of um, codify that and, and make it more possible for people to use it as divination. But then at the same time, there were these esoteric groups that were really obsessed with these secrets, you know, these secret societies, and they were wanting to sort of encode the cards with these secrets, you know, and so they're kind of these these multiple ways that the cards were being used. You know, some people were just kind of playing games. Some people were divining and some people were thinking that these carried these big universal secrets, you know, and it's also interesting to reflect on the difference between wanting to use the card or believing that the card carries a meaning about like the world or about the universe versus that the card is speaking directly to the individual, you mm -hmm. know, that's, those are two very different, you know, viewpoints. So it's just kind of interesting to, to kind of thread all that together. It reminds me a little bit, and I'll touch on this very, very briefly about when we were talking about this on our quarterly questions episode uh, about why people use the tarot versus use the Oracle and the kind of like weird judgment about how if you can't read the tarot then that's like on you you know you're not as good of a reader or something that's just like the the subtext um i think in in those sentiments and i think that really comes through in the way that the secret societies these esotericists kind of gatekeep like these have symbols already they have universal secrets implanted into them and i don't know it's just 
kind of reminding me of that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, and also these societies were initiatory, you know, so they were like levels. So you had to you learn all these meanings. And as you learned, you, you know, rose in level. So that's a very good point. Hmm. So this approach was greatly influenced by mid-century advancements in psychology and with the work of psychoanalysts such as Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Mary Kay Greer details Jung's connection to the tarot on her blog, citing a speech from a seminar that he gave in March of 1933. Quote, the tarot is a set of playing cards, such as were originally used by the gypsies. There are Spanish specimens, if I remember rightly, as old as the 15th century. These cards are really the origin of our pack of cards, in which the red and the black symbolize the opposites, and the division of the four, clubs, spades, diamonds, and hearts, also belongs to the individuation symbolism, end quote. According to journalpsyche.org, Carl Jung's process of individuation can be broadly defined as, quote, the achievement of self-actualization through a process of integrating the conscious and unconscious, end quote. For Jung, the human spiritual experience is a quest for wholeness, and he viewed the cards of the tarot through his lens of archetypes. Again, quoting from journalpsyche.org, quote, for Jung, Archetypes consist of universal mythic characters that reside within the collective unconscious of people the world over. Archetypes represent fundamental human motifs of our experience as we evolved. Consequentially, they evoke deep emotions, end quote. Young's work coincided with that of Joseph Campbell, a noted mythologist who believed in the concept of the collective unconscious, a term which he said, quote, is used in recognition of the fact that there is a common humanity built into our nervous system, out of which our imagination works, end quote. Scholars have pointed out distinct differences in the approaches of Young and Campbell. As Dr. Robert Segel has said, quote, Campbell is chiefly concerned with the similarities among myths, Young with the differences, end quote. It is nevertheless interesting to note the impact these two thinkers have had on tarot readers of the past 100 years. You'll be hard-pressed to find a tarot reader these days who does not make some mention of archetypes or talk about the cards as pieces of the self. Many readers and teachers also speak about the major arcana as a journey towards self-actualization, a Jungian concept, or as the fool's journey, a nod to Campbell's famous hero's journey. However, we do want to note the contributions of American-born actress Eden Gray, who in 1960 published Tarot Revealed, a modern guide to reading tarot cards. Unlike her occult predecessors of the Golden Dawn who believed the symbols of the cards carried magical properties independent from their users, Gray made the radical suggestion that anyone could learn to read the cards with the right psychological insight, perhaps an influence of the vast array of psychological theory that was being born at this time. But as the decade wore on, most books and teachings on tarot continued to emphasize the esoteric traditions of the past. Eventually, Gray capitulated, publishing A Complete Guide to the Tarot in 1970, which included reference to the Golden Dawn attributions of numerology, Kabbalah, and astrology. It was also in this book that Gray coined the phrase, the fool's journey, and writing in her epilogue, quote, the fool represents the soul of every man. Let each reader use his imagination and find here his own map of the soul's quest, for these are symbols that are deep within each one of us, end quote. We're going to focus on the tarot's more recent history now, from the 1970s to the present. To do this, we'll be relying heavily on an incredible timeline that appears on the website tarotheritage.com. 
The 1970s brought the release of Aleister Crowley's Thoth deck based on the photos from the original paintings. David Palladini's now much beloved Aquarian Tarot became the first of many RWS spinoff decks. Paul Husson's The Devil's Picture Book is one of several books to place tarot in a specifically Wiccan and or pagan context. Richard Roberts' book, Tarot and You, contains transcripts of readings using a psychological free association method, which influenced Mary Kay Greer. And the book, Tarot of the Bohemians by Pappas, gets its first English reprint since 1910. So what a year in tarot history. Goodness, yeah. Pappas was one person that we left out in our Western occultism episode, but he was sort of the final major influence that moved tarot from the realm of game playing and into the realm of esotericism with the publication of his Le Tarot Divinatoire in 1909. In 1976, tarot responded to the feminist movement. Woman's Spirit Circle in Santa Cruz would become the birthplace of several feminist decks in the late 1970s, including a new woman's tarot and the Amazon tarot. In 1978, our old friend Stuart Kaplan published the first of our encyclopedias, making thousands of decks available for study. In 1980, Rachel Pollack published her seminal, iconic work, 78 Degrees of Wisdom, which would serve as an inspiration and guide for centuries of tarot readers to come. Pollock is the author of 41 books, including two award-winning novels, Unquenchable Fire, winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, and Godmother Night, winner of the World Fantasy Award, as well as comics. In the preface to the 1997 edition of 78 Degrees of Wisdom, Pollock details her discovery of tarot and her disappointment in the tarot books that were available to her in the late 60s and early 70s, which she says, quote, oddly repeated what you could see with your own eyes, end quote. But as she continued her own study and exploration, she writes that, quote, I remember the moment when I realized that the tarot opened to worlds beyond their surface scenes and official symbolism, end quote. She goes on to name a number of tarot readers and teachers who were influential in the 1980s, Mary Kay Greer, Angeles Arian, James Wanless, and Gail Fairfield, who she says, quote, focused their work on the undeveloped potential of readings to illuminate human experience, end quote. And, you know, Angie, it was really touching, honestly, and interesting to go back and read reread this preface. Um, you know, obviously, 70, 78 Degrees of Wisdom is a book that just like for many other people, it was one of the first tarot books I ever read. And now that we've done all this history digging, reading that preface, I was really appreciating everything that she was saying. You know, she was naming a lot of the people we've talked about. She was naming Eden Gray and um, she was naming Etela and, you know, all these, all of these people and just mm -hmm. talking about the disappointment that she felt in these, you know, esoteric codified meanings and really hungering for, you know, a more open approach. So it's just, it was really interesting to read. Mm-hmm. Having relied so heavily on her research, we would be remiss to not spend a little more time focusing on the highly influential work of Mary Kay Greer. She's the author of nine books on the tarot and a biography of four female magicians. Greer was the recipient of the 2007 International Tarot Lifetime Achievement Award and the 2006 Mercury Award from the Mary Redmond Foundation for Excellence in Communication in the Metaphysical Field. Her 1984 book, Tarot for Yourself, guided readers towards forming personal meanings with the cards rather than memorizing received card meanings and disseminated the Golden Dawn astrological and elemental attributions. 
Another influential 1984 book, Jambalaya, The Natural Woman's Book of Personal Charms and Practical Rituals by teacher and author Louisa Teich, encouraged African-American and Latinx women to reclaim their magic and became central to the rebirth of a nature-centered woman spirit movement, according to a 2019 article from Yes Magazine. A 2021 article from Refinery29 features an interview with the Hood Witches Brie Luna, who explains that until recently, much of the spiritual community represented online featured a more Eurocentric version of divination, black and silver witchcraft, a term Luna coined to describe what she calls the whitewashed American horror story aesthetic popular on Tumblr years ago leaving little room for black and brown women to feel seen or safe in an already stigmatized space. Mm. Indeed, most of the history we've covered during this series has featured the names and voices of white Europeans and Americans. Kaitai Brown, ethnographer and scholar of African diaspora religions and African-American studies, who is quoted in the same Refinery29 article, shares that during periods of European colonization, quote, Knowledge of God was often the Euro-Christian deployment of the term in which non-European peoples and their humanity were judged against. That is to, quote, have religion, end quote, meant that these cultures and peoples conformed to European notions of a belief in a higher power, usually a monotheistic one, with accompanying practices that they could approximate and compare with Christianity, end quote. Kijan Bloomfield, assistant professor of religious studies at Rhodes College, explains that, quote, Black religions also developed a response to the violence of white supremacy. We often describe Black religion in the West as traditions that emerged in hush harbors or spaces that enslaved Blacks gathered in secret to worship and commune beyond the gaze of their white enslavers. However, Black religion also includes Islam and Judaism both of which are part of a diverse tapestry of Black religious traditions, end quote. Conjure and Hoodoo in the U.S., Vodou in Haiti, and Obeya in Jamaica are all African diasporic religious practices that provided protection and healing. To quote Bloomfield again, quote, living in an anti-Black world that continues to denigrate Black existence and ways of knowing, Divination provides a powerful tool to see and discern the answers to an individual or communal problems that are personal and systemic, end quote. This echoes some of the sentiments expressed by former In Search of Tarot guests Rashinda Tramble of Stay Woke Tarot and Kendrick Day and Justin Henry of the creators of Black Queer Tarot. The recent mainstream renaissance of tarot, astrology, and witchcraft has brought with it an explosion of new decks that reimagine and expand beyond the non-inclusive imagery of the Smithwaite deck. And readers, too, are expanding the possible lenses through which they can examine the cards. Today's vibrant tarot community includes thinkers who use tarot to examine social justice principles, inspire creative work such as writing and painting, work with therapeutic clients, and more. It's an exciting moment for tarot, as the time feels ripe for a new expansion of some sort. Exactly where tarot will take us next remains to be seen. So, you know, Angie, I thought it would be fun to close with where do we think tarot is going next? You know, do you have any thoughts on on where you think it might be headed? You know, it's been really, really beautiful for me um, to connect with other people who feel that there really is no separation between social justice and spirituality. For me, they've always gone hand in hand, and that's an essential part of my personal spiritual practice. And so I hope that this becomes um, that we get really comfortable being uncomfortable because these things are relevant. They're not going away. In fact, the more that we ignore them, the more insidious they become. So that's my hope for, for tarot and Oracle and, you know, cardamancy in general. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, um, something that's really been on my mind is working in a more communal way, which I think goes along with what you're talking about. You know, for a long time, the um, sort of setup of a tarot reading has been that there's, you know, one reader and one client. And so there's sort of one person that, you know, has the answers or divines the answers or interprets the answers and one person that's receiving that. Um, but I think as certainly as a white reader, you know, as I've um, investigated my own you know, implicit bias and racism, um, I've become much more interested in making that into a dialogue and also just really owning the fact that I am a human who cannot possibly carry all the answers or understand everyone else's, you know, point of view. Um, I think that's happening. I think we're observing that. I mean, we share with each other, like when we, we put something out on the podcast or you've written something and then someone else seems to be kind of tapped into that same consciousness. And then we get to share and be like, oh my gosh, that was so exciting. How in sync, you know? Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, what's interesting about that is I think, um, I want to hold in the same moment that I hold that I also want to hold, um, you know, the lifting up and the honoring of, voices that have been silenced um, that may be oracular. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely believe that there are people out there that are, you know, oracles or that are oracular. Um, so I'm not suggesting that we should silence that. Um, because along with that, I, I think about the role that everyone plays in the community, you know, mm -hmm. so there are going to be some members of the community that are, you know, maybe diviners or spiritual guides. And then there are other people in the community that do other things, you know, so I think we all have strengths or we all have things that we can contribute. Um, but, you know, again, I'll speak from directly to, to white people as a white person. I think that white people in capitalism and patriarchy really try to seize power. You know, I think, in, I mean, it's, it's been our, it's been our way of life as long as, you know, the story has gone. And so I think that we really have to be careful of, of not um, trying to co-opt that power or like control that power or centralize that power. Um, you know, certainly capitalism plays a huge role in that and pressures us to, you know, turn everything we do into a business, including our tarot work, mm -hmm. you know, so there's a lot, I mean, I'm, I'm bringing up a lot of threads and there's a lot to unpack there, but I think just, um, you know, it's, it's amazing that tarot has become so popular and, and come into the mainstream. Um, but along with that does come the commodification of it and, and capitalism, you know, starts to seize it. So I would love to see in the future, a re-examination of what that means to continue to allow tarot to be, you know, not a taboo thing, mm -hmm. but also, but also maybe making it maybe, I mean, and maybe with that is a little bit you know, of a spiritual, keeping it more spiritual, you know, and along with that, I agree comes, you know, activism and, and all of that is also spiritual, but maybe de decommodifying or decapitalizing it um, mm -hmm. is something I would maybe love to see, you know. I agree. Well said. Well, thank you so much to all of you that have followed along on this journey. I know today's episode was, you know, extra meaty. So if you made it to the end, thanks for listening. 
And, you know, it is our greatest hope, honestly, that this series can serve as an evergreen resource on tarot history for anyone that might come along and find it. So if you enjoyed it um, and you know someone that you think would also like it, please share it with them. Please share it on social media. Um, Leave us a rating and review wherever you podcast. Join us on Patreon. And just thank you for being part of this ride. Mm-hmm. And a big thanks to AJ Ackleson, who composed the music for this series, as well as our regular season theme music. We love you, AJ. We do love you, AJ. Thank you so much. Um, so next week, we will officially kick off season five of the podcast, which is going to feature the return of several previous guests who all happen to be publishing new books this fall, including Brittany Muller, Rebecca Skolnick, Cassandra Snow, and Sophie Strand, along with some new guests that we can't wait to introduce you to. Um, we're really excited about this new season. It really, I feel like five five seasons is a big anniversary, so I can't wait to share it with all of you. Thank you so, so much for listening and being part of this community. We are sending you lots of love wherever you are.